Welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SANS Charity and on Twitter at SANS UK. Which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. You get every mixture of emotion and it's like sometimes I didn't know which emotion I was feeling and which one I was representing. I was getting up in the morning when my son got up to go to nursery. Didn't know I was getting back to bed. Hello and thank you so much for joining us for episode one, which is all about those early days of grief and how to navigate them. It's a pretty daunting task starting any podcast, but especially one like this, which is such an important topic and also one that's so close to our own hearts. It is. And I think what we have spoken about and what we really wanted was for us to focus on those stepping stones of loss and how different it is for everybody and how everybody's grief journey looks very different and that's fine. And I think that's a really interesting thing about it because even though you share, you may share something in common with somebody and I could be talking to somebody else who has also experienced baby loss, but the way in which we've dealt with that can be very different. I I like to talk about Alex um, and it makes me feel like I'm not forgetting him, but it doesn't mean that that is the right way to to be for other people. Absolutely. And and I prefer to keep my losses um, more private, I suppose, and closer to me in a protective way, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's not wrong or right. It's just how I feel most comfortable being, I guess. And in those early days, I think one of the hardest things is that you try to navigate and you try to get your head around what's happened and what that will mean for your future and practically what what you need to do. And those different stepping stones of loss and grief that we go through might not be as we imagined they would be. They might feel completely different. We might display different emotions than perhaps we even thought that we had. Definitely. I know when we lost Alex, one of the things that really stands out for me is we we found out that his heart had stopped and we were going to have to go in and be induced. And we came home in between that um, and were home for a couple of days. And I remember making noises that I didn't even know I could make. And I'm someone who works in sound and I'm someone who speaks on the radio and, you know, does radio dramas and plays and all sorts I thought I knew every single sound that my voice could make but the instinctive cries that were coming out of my body were like something I had only ever experienced when watching like a David Attenborough animal Mm. program like it was it was it was so unexpected and so deep and so raw Mm. um and comes from a place, as you say, that you have no idea was there. And I, I mean, I remember um, 
I'm a very calm, very level person. And I remember the rage that came from somewhere. And it's quite shocking. And I think one of the really important things that this podcast can hopefully do is to make that whole range of emotions safe and also give people the space to express them and to find the support so that they can express them in whatever way they they need to. So in this episode, we're going to speak to a number of different people about their grief journey and those stepping stones that, that they've experienced. So one of the first people that we spoke to is Kate Gurney, who lost her twins, Sophie and Jessica, at 17 weeks. Because they died before I delivered. We kind of were getting our head around it rather than being in labour later and, and it being a complete shock. So that in itself was weird because we knew we weren't going to come away with with live children from the hospital. But um, we were very lucky in the fact that we had a separate birthing suite with a bereavement midwife who was just totally amazing. Um, obviously kept away from the rest of the maternity ward. It couldn't have been a better horrific experience, if that makes sense. Um, and then we were given the time to spend with them and we were given a sands pack. I think the realisation hit in then that we had to do things and they weren't coming home then. I think that's when I then, it kind of hit me then, even though I knew it was going to happen. So we spent a couple of hours with them and then we we left because I was just very mindful that other people might need this amazing suite. I'm always really struck by the extraordinary generosity of bereaved parents leaving the bereavement suite because you were worried that someone else might need it. Yeah, absolutely. And to be able to be that thoughtful towards other people when you yourself are going through the absolute worst of times is really quite extraordinary. It's interesting that you say that that was the moment really that things started to feel real, you know, when you got the leaflet. Um, what happened next for you emotionally, you know, when you went home? I think I went into a bit of denial of I thought I was all right. We were texting everyone saying, this has happened. We're okay. Please don't be upset. We'll be in touch. We're doing okay. And then literally it kind of went downhill from there. And I think, I don't think I realised it was going to affect me like that. I think I thought I was quite matter of fact and it was going to be okay. So I think it kind of got worse before it got better then. Work were brilliant. They kind of just said, do what you need to do. And I had a really good relationship with my boss at the time, which was really great. It was also COVID, so kind of hid away a little bit and that kind of worked. But what it then meant was that I was getting up in the morning when my son got up to go to nursery and my husband was taking him to nursery and then I was just getting back to bed and just sort of being a complete mess, not functioning normally. And then a good day was kind of getting out of bed and watching telly all day. So that kind of went on and then kind of tried to get back to normality and wanted to go back to work. And they said, do you really want to come back before Christmas? Maybe come back after Christmas. And... That was probably a good thing because it meant more time off, more family time, seeing friends and family and getting out there. Because I think being COVID-wise, it was very easy to hide away and not address it at all. And people reached out, but, you know, people don't know what to say and then their daily lives carry on. And before you know, a couple of weeks have passed and um, sent cards and things. But, yeah, I went back to work in January, but I would say picking up in nurseries and doing social things. I'm nearly two years on now and I'm still struggle with that. I have to be in the right frame of mind to socialise, um, probably because of that worry that 
I might suddenly get upset for no reason, I guess. But it's it's just taking it a day at a time and, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And And I guess what I would say is reaching out is something I probably didn't do enough of at the time and reflecting back. I think when people did reach out, I probably maybe didn't take all those kind of opportunities. But I think if I'd been non-COVID, plaster would have been ripped off faster, maybe, if that's if that's kind of a way of saying it. It's still there. It's always there. It's, it's children who are part of your life. They're part of your family and they always will be. Um, and it's just how you learn to take those small steps, I guess, to move forward. And you do have bad days and with kind of things like triggers and all these sort of memorial things they bring things home again of what you might have had or what might have been and it's just don't be too hard on yourself and that's what I've taken away recently is I think I've been quite hard on myself with guilt and could have done anything and I should have done more and got out more but it's how it's how you process it and the other big learning for me is everybody deals with things totally differently and grief hits people and affects people so differently that you can't, not one size fits all. So it's it's just getting that support. And, and Sands, for example, and I mentioned the pack we got from the hospital. I, I don't know how we would cope without that. So interacting like with our parents, they didn't know what to do. I didn't really want to speak to them and neither did Rob. So we gave them one of the leaflets and that was just fantastic because it took it away from us for having to talk about things but also it really helped our our parents to understand what we're going to do and also where they could get support as well there's so much to deal with isn't there at so many of these different points along the way all this new information you have to take on that other people perhaps have not experienced that you're then having to try and disseminate that and it can be really hard to deal with everything that you you have going on personally whilst you're also then trying to explain to to parents and to friends and then to deal with their grief and their upset too there's there's so much to manage i guess that's why the charity you know the charities that are doing such a sans bringing it to the forefront and doing the research and doing all these incentives and fundraising is fantastic because it, it really gets it out there and actually i did a couple of fundraising things for sans and through the Facebook groups, that has been a massive area of support with other parents that you would never normally meet, sharing stories, but also supporting each other on a swimming challenge when, you know, it's cold outside, you don't really want to go swimming, all the support you get from everyone. Then you remember why you're doing it and it's brilliant just to kind of have that, another avenue where you can talk to people who you might not want to talk to your friends and family, but you can talk to other people further afield. I guess it's also keeping your child's memory alive. I think for me as well, anything I can do to help other people and talking, I can talk about Sophie and Jessica now, but I couldn't before. I think any way of bringing it out there and especially in the workplace, um, there's still a long way to go across places. And where I work is a great place to work, but I'm lucky they let me have time off and come back. I know some people, you know, aren't able to do that. And that makes a massive difference. And when you did go back to work, presumably you found that hard. Yeah, because I was off for so long that I don't know if people, it could be anything, couldn't it? it could be an operational, mental health. Could be, people just kind of were like, oh, you haven't been around. And then if I didn't feel like it, I'd just say, yeah, I've been off. But then I thought, oh, why am I hiding it? Because they're my children. So I think I've got a lot better now at opening up and saying it. And I'm, I'm actually doing a we do huddles at work and next week I'm actually doing an hour-long session on my story and the twins to 90 of my colleagues. Yeah. So that's going to be massive. 
You said how you feel a lot more comfortable now talking about Sophie and Jessica, and that's something that you couldn't do in the early stages. But sometimes I feel like I, I don't want to bring them up because if I say something, I don't want to talk about Alex and then have people be like horrified, really upset, really awkward, not know what to do. I don't want any of that situation. So it's easier to just say nothing and move on because I fear that people will be so awkward. The conversation won't go where it was going in the first place. It will spiral off into somewhere else. They always say, you know, talk to us, open up to us, but they really do. It's that you can kind of almost see them clenching and then... I'm always worried about everybody else. So I then spend the time worrying about them. And then I'm kind of forgetting the point that <laughs> I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so you're kind of like, yeah. oh. And then you walk away thinking, I've just been sort of counselling my friend when I need mm. the help. So no, I think, um, and talking to other colleagues who've lost children, they say the same as well. But that again is education and helping those other people know how to talk. And I've had to say to family and friends that I want them to, acknowledge the date they were born and their due date because they're obviously key dates and that's helped by kind of telling them how it would help me it's such a balance isn't it between protecting the memory of your babies and knowing when it feels safe enough to say something and knowing when you're strong enough to be able to support those people that you're telling (laughs) all of those things go through your mind at the same time and whether it's safe to share that or whether you just want to keep them to yourself you know, that day and, and protect yourself and kind of remember them privately. It's, it's interesting. So we've never shown anyone a picture of them. We're the only two who've seen a picture of them because I feel like they're ours. But then my sister actually said, could I see a picture of them? And I was like, no. And then uh, she was really surprised. But I don't know why I have that reaction because maybe I will change my mind in a year or two. But at the minute, there are children I'll talk about them I, mean, I think it's these stepping stones isn't it I, I can now talk about them but I'm not ready to share the pictures whereas other people you know share the pictures all the time and want to but it's something I can't but uh, lots of my friends who I have spoken to and I do talk to them they get upset and then I find that really difficult because I don't want them to cry on me because <laughs> then you're <laughs> but you know it's their emo- they're emotional you know they're sad for us and going through it so it's yeah it's really different. I think that was one of the things that surprised me is how sad other people were I don't think I expected that at all I guess it's they love and care for you and it's you know it's your child and your family and they're there to support you and want to be there but again don't know how to and it's it's the emotion I guess that that comes out for you in those early days where you said that you'd managed to get up to say good morning and goodbye to William as he went off to nursery. But after that point, you had to go back to bed. What is it that got you through those moments? Because those early days are so hard. I think, yeah, I well, I used to just spend the whole time with the pictures of the girls. And then I just every day got a little bit better. And then I was kind of thankful that I'd had the chance to meet them and have them and just time I think and just William was a real I would have had a different journey I think if I hadn't had a son I probably wouldn't have got up in the morning for much longer than I did but I think it's just that was the constant and the normality for me that helped the days go through but um it, it was just I don't I don't know what just time I think got better and got me through it I didn't wake up one morning and go this is the day my my husband was really good at 
letting me have the time. He went straight back to work. I think that's how he dealt with it. He needed to keep preoccupy his mind at the time. But um, having the time, I guess, to do that and then maybe try getting up and sitting on the sofa for a few hours. Um, <laughs> I watched the whole of Grey's Anatomy series, <laughs> 1 to 16 or whatever it is. That was quite good. But, um, yeah, that got me through. But, no, I, I just time. I think it was just time. There's not one thing because I wasn't really talking to anybody at the time. I needed that time, I think, to look at their pictures and, and be on my own. And I, I didn't sleep a lot as well when I when it all happened. Obviously, my sleeping was all out the window, so I did sleep a lot in the day as well um, to make up for being up at night thinking about things. But I guess everyone does it differently. Like, I can't believe my husband just went back to work, <laughs> but that's what I've learned. Yeah. Men and women and different people do different things, and it's what gets them through each day, I guess. What you've spoken about how you know your friends were there and they did reach out, but at the time you weren't able to take that support. What did you need from people in those early days? Probably texts and little notes and just little messages for me without me then having to ring them and have a big full on conversation, but just so I knew they were there. You know, right when it happens, you get quite a lot of cards and like we had so many flowers it's like a florist but it was the weeks afterwards now and again I get the odd text from a friend going like I'm happy if you want a coffee or a tea but if you just want to text me back or you don't even have to text me back but I'm here for you those are the things that really made my day I guess because someone was thinking about me but I didn't then have to call because I didn't always feel like talking to people but if I messaged them then then I just have some whatsapp whatsapps was brilliant actually because can have that communication without actually having to talk and if you're weeping while you're doing it you can still send your messages um (laughs) without having a big emotional breakdown on someone um and worrying about what they think I guess they don't know what's going on behind the the phone do they other than your little message so that was really helpful and the people who just checked in and most of those were bereaved parents actually if I actually think about the ones who were the most support and I guess that's because they they understand and it's not the friends and family who haven't been through it because it's not their fault they don't understand, but the people who've been through it before just checking in. And I guess I've since done that with colleagues now who've since had losses. Um, One of my friends wanted to see people and was out all the time and talking about her daughter straight from day one, whereas I was kind of much different, but I think that's the different journeys. Some people want you to say the child's name, some people don't, and I guess it's just talking to colleagues at work so I've, I've joined the working parent network now at work and I'm driving um support for baby loss at work and even the people I've spoken to there so different everybody's journeys and you're right it's that's why friends families and colleagues I guess have such a different difficult journey to support because it's so different for each person it's so true isn't it and I think what Kate was saying there about you know friends families loved ones finding it difficult to know what to say and how to navigate it perhaps we don't give them enough credit you know when they do say the wrong thing and say something that sort of cuts pretty deep on the inside without the meaning to you know it's hard for them to navigate it because we don't talk about it because it is for some reason so taboo 
as I think are some of the emotions that we feel. Um, Tanya Howard spoke about this quite eloquently. We actually speak to her for a different episode, but wanted to include it here. I found what Tanya um, had to say incredibly liberating. Yeah. So Tanya lost her son Isaac in 2018. It's been a few years now since it happened and technically my body is healed and grief is very different for me now as opposed to when it happened. You know, I can remember those first few stages of going home and I mean, the first day we went home, his furniture was being delivered as much as we tried to cancel it and it turned up at the door. I think about 10 minutes after we arrived home and I couldn't even have that conversation, you know, because it was just too hard. And then there were days where it would be like, I'd get excited about something and then it would just hit me. What have you got to be excited about? You've just lost the excitement, the child that you were planning to do everything with. Because that moment you find out you're pregnant, you can't help it. Your head spirals and you're already planning the rest of your life. And that all got just taken away. And I would get like this sensation in my belly of excitement. And then I'd hate myself for that. And then I'd, I'd make myself feel sick because I'd be so angry that actually, no, I don't have that in my life anymore. Whereas obviously fast forward to now and I don't, I don't have that anymore. I still have triggers and I don't know if those triggers will ever go away, but it is okay. Um, and it's okay if I want to cry. It's okay if I want to be happy. It's okay if I want to get excited. It's okay if I want to have a complete meltdown about Isaac and cling to his cushions and teddies and things like that. But it's okay to be happy as well. I'm so pleased to hear you say that and to talk about those really early feelings um, and how you felt then and the fact that it's it it will make it feel safer for someone to have those extreme feelings, yeah. hearing you say. And just when you were talking about anger, and it was something I, I chatted with Caroline about very early on, was my anger. I had to be a bridesmaid just after I lost my um, baby Gosh. and... Um, I tried on my bridesmaid's dress and I still looked pregnant and um, it was really shocking. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to do? I've got to be a bridesmaid. I'm definitely not not going to be a bridesmaid because this is a really close friend. Yeah, I'm going to have to either say thank you when people say congratulations to shut the oh. conversation down or I'm going to have to tell them. So I decided I was going to just say thank you if people say congratulations. And obviously she knew and the oh, other bridesmaids wow. knew. That's so but brave. That, that anger when I tried on that dress I ended up <laughs> smashing up a chest of drawers from a well-known Scandinavian retailer um, <laughs> in the hall outside our flat and I remember my husband ringing my stepmother and I was so grateful to her um, her baby died my little brother died when I was 17 and so she she understood that mm. anger and he said um, Denny's smashing up a <laughs> smashing something up in the hall with a hammer or it was a hammer or a baseball bat and I still I need to ask him because I can't remember <laughs> and he said do you think it's all right and she said is she safe hmm. and he said well yeah I think so and she said yeah that's good I'm really glad so long as she's safe that's fine and I will be so grateful forever that she made that an okay thing for me to be doing yeah unfortunately all our neighbors were upstairs and didn't have to walk through the lobby in which I was smashing <laughs> up the chest of drawers but just to hear you talking about that anger because I think as women as well particularly anger sometimes isn't particularly acceptable and certainly violent anger isn't isn't acceptable so yeah. to hear you say that and to say that 
you don't feel like that all the time now and but it's okay if you did yeah it's really powerful and I hope it really helps people in those early stages when definitely you do feel out of control and you know yeah. it, you need something safe to bounce off to contain that I think yeah. so if that is a conversation with somebody or um a message on an online community or just he- you know hearing you say that on the podcast I think is is so powerful I hope it helps I think it's really normal, but it's also quite terrifying when you experience these emotions that you didn't actually think you were capable of, you know, when you thought, this is me, I am a calm person, full stop. Everybody knows me as a calm person. And then suddenly mm-hmm. the feelings that you that are developing aren't those calm, placid feelings that you were used to. I think that's right. Um <laughs> It was very shocking at the time, but I think looking back, I I'm going to use the word liberating. This week, having been very public about it, and I'm a very private person, it has really made me think about how I was able to let go of that. I suppose it would have been physical stress in my body through that very physical action. It's interesting that today you know so many years on there's a new liberation 2004 so it's a you know it's a long time ago and I've obviously trained as a counsellor and I've done a lot of processing of of all of those things and I suppose what surprised me this week was the fact that you get another layer of that onion peeled away I guess that you didn't necessarily realise needed peeling away and it's felt incredibly I've used the word liberating too much, but it has just felt quite freeing. And um, I'm proud of lots of things around that, actually. I'm proud of the fact that I was able to do that. I'm really proud that um, Simon was able to ring my stepmother. And I'm really proud of my stepmother for giving him really good advice. So (laughs) there's lots of (laughs) there's lots of positive feelings looking back, however many years later, about something that at the time was was quite profoundly shocking. And it's interesting, isn't it, how this was in 2004 and yet today, you know, as we record this in 2022, you're still learning about yourself, about something that happened so many years ago. There's still that other element of processing that takes place because that seems to be quite common. That's certainly how I feel about things, things that I experienced at an earlier point in time, you know, during our loss, I'm only now perhaps ready to to learn about, and I'm sure that will be the case in the future. You know, your grief, your grief changes and you learn more about your grief and how you deal with things. And you're only ready to process things when you're ready to process them. And you only know what you know when you know it, if that (laughs) makes any sense. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it is lifelong and it is those stepping stones that we're talking about. You know, you go forwards and backwards over them and you might go round and round and you might get stuck on a stepping stone and then suddenly take three leaps forwards. You know, it's it's not a linear thing by any means. And different factors can play a part, can't they, in when you actually reach those stepping stones and whether you're jumping forward, jumping back. Things like perhaps you're normally a practical person or an emotional person or whether you were mentally and physically well during the birth or the passing of your child or the pregnancy or sometimes whether you were the carrier of the baby or the partner 
you know, we, we all have this grief, but that point in which we perhaps allow ourselves to access it or to process it, it can be very different. We spoke to Rez Rahman and he and his wife Priya had baby Jakob, who was born premature and sadly developed something called neck, where the tissue in the bowel becomes inflamed. Jakob passed away when he was about four weeks old. As a father, the first thing after Jakob passed away, he was like, right, protect Priya. She was going through all of her health battles. And then on top of that, now she's lost her son. I've lost my son as well, but it was the idea, right, protect her at all costs. Do what I can to try to bring back normality for her. It was such a hard thing. So I'm Muslim, so we believe in quick funerals. He passed away at 6.20am. We buried him that same day. I remember in our head, it's definitely not going to be the same for all parents, but in our head, we didn't want him going in a fridge. We didn't want that idea of he's going to be somewhere else where we're not. You know, he spent his life with us. At the end of the day, we have a duty to bury him. And, you know, for us, we wanted to do it as soon as possible. And we were able to do that. And then, as you can imagine, after the funeral, it wasn't like a wake. But at the same time, a lot of family members came around. One of the guests described it the best. And I remember thinking she knows what I'm going through. Because in my head, I was trying to lighten the mood, say, look, it's fine, you know, this, that, and that. I don't know why I was trying to make jokes, but I was just trying to lighten the mood. And she grabbed me and she went, your heart's breaking inside. And I know you're trying to make us all laugh, but, you know, we understand your pain. And it's just one of those things. You don't know what you want to do at that time. But in my head, it was like, right, Priya's crying, everyone's crying. Let's try to lighten the mood because at the end of the day, our pain's our pain. You guys are grieving for us, which I understand. But later, I I can see the idea was actually they're allowed to grieve for us, even if they didn't know him. Everyone's allowed to grieve in their own little way and separate way. So, yeah, we, we saw a lot of family over the next few days. And then shortly after that, we went away for a break. But it was just we needed that space and time because so, so much had happened in the space of four, four and a half weeks that, you know, I still can't describe it. But yeah, we went away, had a bit of our time where we were able to sit and cry and talk. And, you know, it, it's one of those things of crying is seen as such a thing of, woman. Well, if somebody's crying, somebody has to do something. But I feel like after what we've gone through, you kind of learn... Sometimes you just need to let the person cry. Not get it out of the system, but they're expressing an emotion that they can't do without tears or, you know, something like that. And But I know, like, I'll be honest with you, as a younger person, I was always the first one to grab a tissue box, tell them, you know, it's going to be fine, blah, blah. Sometimes it doesn't have to be fine. Sometimes, you know, you just need to let it break a little bit to then come back to a point where you're like, actually, yeah, right, I understand what I'm crying about, or I understand where the pain is, or what what I'm hurting over. And have you had time, do you think, you were talking about protecting your wife and, and how important that felt. You know, we hear that so often from, from husbands and male partners that they felt the need to protect and be the ones to share the news or they end up having to be the ones that share the news and 
at what point have you managed to have that time and space to to grieve yourself or has it been very different do you think I, I did the calling when he passed away. I did all the calling. I did all of those things. But it was the situation of, in a weird way, I thought Priya's loss was bigger than mine because I knew him for four weeks. And, you know, hands down, best time of my life. But at the same time, you think of it as the mom grew the baby. There's no two ways about it. They've... They felt the kicks much earlier than we did. You know, they felt everything. They they went through the pain of labor. And, you know, there's nothing that we can do that compares to that. And so naturally, the inclination is her loss is greater than mine. But I think in this situation, loss is loss, irrelevant of, you know, mom, dad, or what the situation is. I think there have been and there, there will be days where I've come home from work can't talk because you know the drive home made me think about my son can't talk to her just need a hug and she knows you know and there'll be times where it's vice versa she won't talk she won't say anything to me but I know what she needs you know and realistically would like our son back but it's not the case it's more the situation of how we deal with it and you know like you said time is a massive factor of healing but it's just processing it it's such a weird one the pain never goes away you know my son's not here it's it's a pain to stay for life but at the same time it's how you deal with it and the way you deal with it I think the best description and Priya is the first one to catch on to it was I remember straight after he passed away if I saw an ambulance and you know when their sirens are going and if someone didn't move out the way for the ambulance, I would get really angry, hesitant, you know, all of those things. And you could see me tense up and I would be shouting at the person saying, move out the way, blah, blah, blah. And Priya said, look, you need to see some counselling for that because we had to watch our son going in an ambulance twice. And at the end of the day, you're associating that to this. And it, it is true. It, there's a massive association. So now every time I see an ambulance, I'm like, I kind of freeze and or whatever the situation is. And it's one of those things of, I have that because I'm the driver I was following at the time, whereas Priya won't feel that. But there's different things that, different battles we're going to have to face. I think that's a really interesting point that you've both gone through the loss of your child, but actually there are different things that, that you went through that, that she didn't. And I think that's kind of always the case, really, isn't it? You do different things, you take on different roles, you view things you know, differently, you had different things to do at the time. And when it comes to grief, it can play out in so many different ways. And people talk about the roller coaster and the whole, well, I feel angry or I feel guilty or I feel upset. Or um, I also, in amidst all of this, feel huge amounts of joy and elation because it was the most amazing experience. And it's all like muddled up like this gigantic ball of muddled up wool and all of those emotions and they're all normal it is you get every mixture of emotion and it's like sometimes looking back now i can say i didn't know which emotion i was feeling and which one i was representing i think the best way to describe it is prior to pregnancy or anything like that you're having a sad time it's sad you're having a happy time it's happy yeah <laughs> If you mix it all together, you don't know which one to do. 
And, you know, there'd be times when he was alive and I was happy. And then all of a sudden realization would hit me. He's not healthy. He's in NICU. You know, he's in an intensive care unit. And then all of a sudden I'd be crying. So I was literally laughing a second ago and I'd be crying the next second. And, you know, it could be the other way. You could be crying, but something reminded me of him. And now I'm laughing about him. But it's just, it's how you deal with the day. Each, I remember saying to Priya, this is the day he's passed away. And I was like, we've got to take one hour at a time. You know, he's passed away now. Is Before we know it, it'll be seven. Before we know it, it'll be nine and ten and so forth. And then then we'll look at it as a, it's one day at a time. And then before we know it, it'll be one month at a time. We had his um, two-year anniversary the other day. You feel like you're leaving him behind because obviously he's not present. But at other times, it's like, I don't think there's a day that goes without me and Priya having a conversation about him. And it literally might be a case of, yeah, my son looked nothing like you. You know, <laughs> and you know, I might be teasing Priya, or you know, she'll say, "Oh, he de- definitely didn't have your anger problems," or something like that. But he's still present in our lives, but in a completely different way than what we wanted him to be. Or it's how we deal with that. And I think we said something like that once in front of someone else. And sometimes other people don't understand in the sense of, "Yeah, we need to talk about him to put us at ease," but we're not saying it in a way to hurt each other. Whereas someone who hasn't gone through loss won't understand that. You were talking earlier about how different people react in different ways and perhaps men and women react differently. Um, But you were also talking about how you felt that there was a cultural element as well. Yeah, um, I think there's a cultural and a religious element. Obviously, because we're Muslim, we felt like we needed to bury him. For us, it was a very important thing. Now, in our religion, um, basically, they say if you've had to endure child loss, it's one of those things where God will grant you the gates to heaven straight away. And on that day, your child will be there waiting for you. And, you know, at the time when people said it, I was like, send me to hell. I just want my child back. I don't want gates of heaven. But it's a cultural thing. It's natural to say it because you think of it as, I know you're going through this pain, but look at what you're going to have later. But when you're going through that pain, that later, you know, you can't even imagine that. So let's not talk about that. And realistically, as someone who's experienced that, I would never say that to someone. But I think it's just the way our cultures deal with certain things. Um, Culturally, there is this big aspect of you've lost a child, you'll have another one. A child is unique. But I think the idea is a woman, you didn't get to know them, you don't know what they're like and so forth. And But at the end of the day, a loss is a massive thing. And it's like, no one will understand except other parents. But I'm Bengali culturally. So we deal with love through food. So a wedding's all about the food. Um, A baby's born, it's all about the food. You know, even at funerals, it's all about the food. You know, we have to feed everyone. And it's just, I remember we've done the funeral. Everyone's come back home. They're trying to feed everyone. I remember telling my sister-in-law, make sure your sister eats. Because since he started deteriorating, it was probably about 36 hours. I couldn't remember the last time I'd eaten. So I don't know when she had eaten. But yeah, I told my sister-in-law to feed my wife. I had no intention of eating. 
nothing's ever going to fill me up again, but everyone's trying to feed you. It's just one of those things. It's like at the point of when he passed away, we were able to bathe him. And then I remember it was the weirdest aspect for me because we were taking pictures with him and he's passed away. At that time, I was like, this is the weirdest thing with, I was looking at Priya saying, why are you, are you making me take pictures with my dead son? It's, you know, and she said she'd gone through um, loss like that with her aunt. And she was like, just trust me on this. Just sit by my side, you know, look at him, talk to him. And I remember it was, it was getting too much for me. I was like, no, this is, this is weird. You're making me hold my child like a doll and so forth. And, you know, she understood from my point of view. And then we put his hand in paint and, you know, made a few cards and so on. But afterwards, bloody hell, those things, those memories that we had is so important. I don't know. I didn't realize it at the time. Had I realized it, I probably, you know, would have said, no, give us another hour, you know. But it's these little things that matter so much. And it's like, when you do death in our culture or religion, it's, that's it. The person's passed away, cemetery, and that's it. But actually there's so much that happens and then it's these little moments where you get to spend some time with them that you don't realize actually right slow it down a second yes you've lost someone yes there's an urgency to bury them but then maybe you've just got to embrace the moment those pictures are very precious to us and we get them out very rarely but when we do get them out we you know we we know there's going to be tear works. We know there's going to be, you know, laughter and so forth. But it's special and unique to us. But I don't know. In terms of culture, what I would say is it is one of those things that's hushed up and shunned. And, you know, oh, one minute, they've lost a baby. Let's not talk about it. Like a lot of people didn't mention my, my son's name for a long time. And I remember, I remember saying to my best mate once, I was like, yeah, his name's Jakob. And since that day, my best mate always says his name. But it's about understanding. Saying his name isn't going to bring me pain. He might not be here, but he's he's someone to talk about still. Whereas saying your baby who passed away, it takes out the humanization of him. It's that recognition, isn't it? That they, they existed and they were. And it's so important. And it, I think it fills parents with joy, I think, to hear their baby's name being said by other people. It's such a tiny thing, isn't it, that makes such a huge difference. Now, if you are listening right now and thinking perhaps you could do with a bit of support, it is always there from Sands, whether that is immediately, as soon as your baby has passed, whether that is years down the line, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or or somebody who works in a neonatal unit, if you have experienced loss, SANS is there for you. In lots of different channels as well. So if you can pick up the phone, then there's somebody on the end of the phone. If all you can do is is um, send an email then and just get it all out onto the screen, then that's there for you. There's an online community which is incredibly supportive. So you join the online community and you can talk, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, you know, those awful moments at two o'clock in the morning where you just need to get something out of your head or you can't sleep, then there's someone always that's going to be there feeling quite similar or you can read people's stories and that's that can be quite comforting as well 
and, and we obviously have our safe spaces on Facebook too for, for men and for um, the, the general um, Facebook support um, space as well. And those spaces we're developing so that they feel comfortable for, for many different people. And we obviously also have our SANS support groups around the country and our amazing Befriender volunteers who are trained to, you know, just to hold that space and to listen and to be there and provide that peer support that is so valuable. Of course, all the information on how to get in contact with SANS and how to get hold of that support will be in our show notes. Coming up in our next episode, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about the SANS community and the different areas of it, from fundraising to support and education and also to research, as well as meeting parents and hearing from them. We also hear from one of the trustees, Professor Sarah Stock. She's also a consultant obstetrician and she talks to us about the research that she's doing where the goal is to decrease the number of stillbirths by half by 2025. And we want to end every episode by talking about hope for the future. This is Kate Gurneys. So my hope for the future is to have another child uh, if time and body clock allows. And I think I'll always continue to do something with sounds because I find it really good for my soul and it helps me remember Sophie and Jessica, but also helping other people just makes me feel really good and just continuing to educate people and and help get rid of the stigma of baby loss. But yeah, another baby maybe. Voices of Baby Loss is an under-the-mast creative audio production.